You're listening to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. I'm Jake Neer. And thank you for joining us today. We're going to talk about a lot of cool things, and we want to hear from you. Primarily, we're going to spend the bulk of the hour talking about North Korea and the escalating tensions there. But later on, we're going to hear from a man who hosts a podcast called See Something, Say Something. His name is Ahmed Ali Akbar, and he hosts this podcast through BuzzFeed about being Muslim in America. I'm really looking forward to hearing that conversation from our associate producer, Ria Basha. But first, Donald Trump doubled down on his tough rhetoric toward North Korea this week. Trump's fire and fury comment came in the wake of intelligence reports that suggest North Korea has developed technology to miniaturize nuclear weapons. North Korean officials apparently weren't phased by Trump's warning just after the fire and fury statement. They made a very specific threat against Guam, a strategic military location for the U.S. Uh, What does this continuing escalation mean for world security? What does it mean for America's standing in the world? And we want to hear from you. Are you concerned about where this is headed? Do you feel more or less safe because of the way the president is handling this situation? Please call up and let us know what you're thinking. The number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And to talk a little bit about what's going on with North Korea, we have two local experts on this and uh, sort of the wider uh, scope of international relations. Uh, first off, we have Peter Trumbor, Associate Professor of Political Science and the Coordinator of the International Relations Program at Oakland University. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Stephen Manning. He teaches comparative and international politics and political theory at the University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, he also just returned from Beijing, where he was teaching a class this summer. Stephen, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Jake. Uh, morning, Peter. Hey, good morning. So uh, first off, uh, uh, Stephen, I want to quickly start with you since you just returned from Beijing. Uh, I'm curious if you have a sense at this point about how this fire and fury statement is resonating uh, around the region and in Asia. What is your sense? If, if, if you, I'm not sure if you were still in Beijing when he said it, but how do you think it would resonate given the experiences that you've had in China recently over the summer? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I was back when he made, I've been back for a week and a half or so. So I was, I was back in the States when, uh, when Trump made the comments. Uh, and even before that, when the uh, UN Security Council vote was taken over the weekend. Um, I think that, you know, China's a key player in this. And I read one analysis that Trump's comments were actually aimed more at Beijing than they were at, uh, at the North Korean regime in the sense that uh, his comments were designed to convince um, China that the status quo was very, very dangerous in that it risks war. And that would encourage, uh, if this worked, that would encourage China to intervene with with North Korea, I mean, they're, they're very close allies in many respects, um, to get uh, North Korea to change its behavior in a way that was more preferable to both the United States and to China. So whether that happens or not, I don't know. And uh, what one people, I, I think it was one positive sign that both, uh, both China and Russia, I mean, that, that UN Security Council vote was, uh, resolution was unanimously adopted, which means that China and Russia, permanent members of the UN Security Council, voted for it. The question always, however, is whether or not they will actually uh, enforce those economic sanctions as rigorously as the resolution calls for. That's always an issue. Mm. Uh, Peter, I'm curious, when you first heard this statement from Donald Trump, what sort of went through your mind and what do you think are the, the implications from your standpoint? 
Well, I think that's, in many ways, that's some of the worst kind of, of bellicose language. Um, what, and, and I would not necessarily disagree with, uh, with Stephen, but I would question the extent to which Trump's uh, statement was really all that calculated uh, beyond simply the kind of, of chest-pounding um, aggression that he, that he likes to express in, in his rhetoric. Um, so my sense, when you make that kind of statement to the North Koreans, what you are asking them to do is, in fact, to double down, to come back with something equally, if not more aggressive. And that's, that's the real danger. And I think what we've seen uh, over the last couple of days now since that statement was made, in fact, yesterday, the Secretary of State walking that back, uh, essentially saying that there is no plan currently mm-hmm. to move forward with a military option. Uh, the fact that Trump made that statement uh, unscripted, uh, more or less off the cuff on his own without consulting uh, or even alerting his national security team that he was going to say anything <laughs> on this issue, let alone uh, using that kind of rhetoric, I think is telling. Uh, I would challenge the supposition that that any, or, or I would say the majority of Trump's statements are, are all that calculated, frankly. Yes, to be Rex Tillerson in this day and age, <laughs> uh, a fun job, I would imagine, as a Secretary of State to try and have to walk back or sort of tamp down some of the rhetoric. Right. Like you say, it comes off the cuff. And Stephen, I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, having especially just, uh, having spent a lot of time actually in Asia, the fire and fury even though it comes uh, maybe just off the top of his head, or if it was written down, it strikes me as feeling similar to something we might hear from North Korea. Those Mm. specific words, this idea of hellfire raining down or destruction being um, waged against uh, another country in total. So this sort of mass element of uh, uh, fear-mongering in some ways, um, it seems to me like that's something we might hear more from a regime or a dictatorship like North Korea. Well, yeah, actually, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, right, Laura. The, uh, the, DP, the DPRK's favorite phrase in, in these situations, they use it again in the threat against Guam, was uh, sea of fire. Sea. And, and mm-hmm. it, it, they, they both have these sort of apocalyptic uh, end-of-the-world sort of scenarios to them. It also reminded me of uh, Trump's fire and, fire and fury comment, uh, which was, I mean, chilling is one way to put it. Um, this was very reminiscent of, uh, if you go back and look at Harry S. Truman's comments in uh, about uh, in 1945, around this time of year, August 6th, uh, his warning to Japan. Now, this is after after we dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima, killing 140,000 people, and before, three days after that, we dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, killing another uh, 74 or 5,000 people. But in, in, the, in the few days in between those two, Truman used very, very uh, similar language as, as what Trump used. Now, I agree with Peter. I don't think Trump has any sense of history, so I'm not suggesting that Trump went back to the history books and looked at what Truman said and repeated that. Right. Uh, and I think he's probably right that Trump is, uh, every indication we have is Trump is, is nowhere near calculating to uh, strategize, well, I'll make these comments in the hope that China will change. I think Peter's absolutely right about that. So I was a little stunned when I heard that. But, um, yeah, the comments are very reminiscent of, and it's almost like uh, a schoolyard kind of, uh, schoolyard bluster, this back-and-forth kind of thing, you know? And it's very, very, um, uh, very, very different from what the normal 
um, you know, the firm but measured language that presidents use in situations uh, like this. And in fact, that previous presidents have, in fact, used. Well, let's talk about the difference in the way certain types of governments use rhetoric. Uh, on one hand, we have President Truman, who's using it in, a, in an actual war scenario. And in, in this case, we have two leaders who use rhetoric. It seems to me like as a device more to speak to their own people than to uh, necessarily even engage with the opposite country. How much of this, in your estimation, is about reflecting back to one one's own country uh, their own sort of chest thumping or the the bigness of their missiles, if you will, uh, going forward um, as, as in just having support from the people versus, um, you know, international relations. Right. Well, I'm, I haven't seen any data on this, but I'm sure that uh, Trump's base, which is as, as strong as it's ever been, whatever that is, a quarter of the of the of the of the electorate or a third of the electorate somewhere in there, I mean, these are the people who uh, Trump could do. What was the what was the quip that Trump could gun down an innocent person on uh, on Fifth, Fifth Avenue, Avenue right. City, and his his base would still support them? I'm sure those people think this is fantastic. This is great. This is exactly what he, what what he ought to be doing. And every time he behaves outside the box, outside you know established practices, uh, that most reasonable people think is the way to go. We have to do diplomacy and negotiation, etc. Um, they are very much in favor. So I think it's. It's um, I mean, when most most of us as let's call us reasonable people, we hear these comments. I mean, we just we just fall off the chair at the outrageousness of these things. We have to remember that uh, there's a portion of the country that voted for Trump that uh, is saying, yes, this is exactly what you ought to be saying. Uh, so I think you're right in that it, it does appeal. And I think it's it's uh, it's probably true on the North Korean side as well. I mean, this uh, uh, pumping up of the nationalist fervor. I mean, this is a very poor, isolated country. The regime cannot even feed its own population. So it's got to it's got to come up with something, you know, and this uh, presenting the, the United States as this evil imperialist empire. I mean, that does have a certain uh, a certain nationalistic appeal to the North Koreans. Yeah, you're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today, along with Laura Weber Davis. And, you know, we want to hear from you. Please uh, call us up and tell us what you're thinking about this situation with North Korea. The number is 313-577-1019. Again, what does this continuing escalation mean for world security? How do you feel? Do you feel more safe? Do you feel less safe by this rhetoric from the administration? Is it a good thing? to put out this sort of really sort of strong stance against North Korea and, and look and appear uh, like you're, you're trying to take a hard stand against them? Or would it be better to, uh, you know, would it be better to uh, maybe be a little more diplomatic in this yeah. situation? I think the question for me, too, Jake, is this discussion of nuclear warheads, Right. I think, engenders a certain element of anxiety in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how close we are or far away we are from a nuclear bomb being dropped anywhere. Just the discussion is is sort of anxiety laden for <laughs> right. me. Um, and if if you're with me on that, give me a call three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Again, that's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Yeah, and 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 maybe just to boil it down a little bit more, but my my reaction to this for both of you, I think, is what situation has Trump sort of put himself in by by making this stand? I mean, by by saying 
uh, if you threaten us, you'll be met with fire and fury. And you could debate what fire and fury even means. But uh, I think it, it to me, it seems like you're risking either uh, either you have to you commit basically to responding in a strong way that could escalate the situation further or you could very easily or, or you could look weak you could appear right. weak and and what does that mean for the trump administration um you know peter first of all you know what do you think about uh that sort of uh, it, it seems like uh, diplomacy 101 in many ways not to put yourself in a situation <laughs> with two bad choices okay so this is in fact what is so dangerous about the language that was used it's not that it is a threat it is a threat that is not credible. And mm. if you're going to use uh, coercion or the threat of coercion as a foreign policy tool or a diplomatic tool, there's sort of three kind of things that you need uh, to use threats effectively. The, the threat needs to be credible. You have to be able to deliver the kind of punishment that you're, that you're promising. And clearly the United States can do that. Um, your threat has to be credible, meaning that your opposite uh, number has to believe that you will, in fact, deliver that uh, that punishment that you're threatening. And then you've got to effectively communicate those first two things. Mm -hmm. So what Trump has done, I think, is very effectively given us two of the three C's of effective coercion. He has made a, 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 a threat of capability. Mm -hmm. He has communicated it very effectively, but no one believes it. Mm. It's a it's not a credible threat. And it's not a credible threat in part because his own senior officials are walking it back. Now, at the same time that you have Trump threatening fire and fury, you have people like Lindsey Graham in the Senate saying that Trump will not allow North Korea to achieve these certain benchmarks. Well, the only way to not allow that to happen is through the use of preemptive military force, force. Mm -hmm. right. which I think no one who has spent any time looking at or thinking about the situation on the Korean Peninsula would argue would be anything but a disaster. And so even, even that level of, of, of rhetoric is in and of itself uh, problematic because it raises questions about what do you do when North Korea does the inevitable, which is press their luck. That's what they have done since the end of the Korean War. Uh, I would like to take a phone call into this conversation and get your reaction to this comment as well, Peter. Uh, let's go to the phones. Uh, Dave in Grand Blank. Dave, thanks for joining the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, please, what's your um, comment this morning? Uh, my comment is, is that I do support Trump uh, with the way that he is speaking to the North Koreans. The North Koreans have never uh, done anything but threaten, and, you know, they're creating their nuclear uh, bombs to try to get whatever they're... Whatever, I don't even know what they're looking to get is the biggest problem, I guess, for a lot of Americans. They, they just always wanting to blow up America. And I just believe that, uh, that Trump has to speak with, uh, with them this way because there's no diplomatic communication between them. Right. So you're saying, and, you're saying that the, the way that he's talking right now is the only course of action that is available, essentially. Well, I believe it's a way... I, the, the gentleman that's running the country is, what, 27 years old? So he's really just a young man. He really doesn't have the, the, the adult... Uh, comprehension of what he's doing, I don't believe. He's just been spoiled 
for for a very long time. And to talk to him as a regular adult, I I don't think he's getting the point. He obviously mm-hmm. is not getting the point. Well, so, Dave, Dave I, I think you... that he's in his early 30s, and I am too. So I'm not sure if you're saying <laughs> I, don't I don't have. Oh no, I'm younger uh, than that. Dave, so. thank you for the call. I do appreciate yeah, your opinion s- on this, Stephen Manning. We should probably say uh, that we we should very much note that going back f- at least I would say until the Clinton administration, every single administration has either made mistakes or maybe even putting it lighter has made calculations that have not paid off when it comes to North Korea. Has diplomacy failed? Well, you know, that's one argument that uh, the, the gentleman who just called in, uh, that, 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 that his, his, this would support his view, the idea that normal, nuanced diplomatic rhetoric has not uh, worked for over, over a number of different uh, American presidencies. Um, or that this is counterproductive. My, my view is that um, we, 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 we obviously should be in the, in the range, the menu of foreign policy options that's usually used. Um, the threat of the use of force and then the actual use of force are at the very bottom of that list. At the top of the list are things like diplomacy, negotiation, sanctions, such as the ones that were uh, authorized by the UN Security Council vote over the weekend, or somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle. Um, it seems to me that, especially with the help of the Chinese, we sh- we sh- what we should be doing is, um, and before I would say that negotiations have failed, uh, we're at a new level now with North Koreans' nuclear capability. Um, we need to find out, sit down, especially with the Chinese, who are close to the North Koreans, and figure out what it is that they want. And what they want, it seems to me, is two things. Uh, they want to stop U.S. South Korean uh, military exercises, which they view as provocative, and it's 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 not irrational for them to view it that way. I mean, let's note that after uh, between the UN Security Council vote and the comments, Trump's comments on Tuesday, on Monday, the United States was flying uh, U.S. B-1B bombers over the Korean Peninsula. Right. Why wouldn't the North Koreans view this as at least? at least provocative. They're surrounded by U.S. forces. Uh, the, the previous story had something like, what, 13,000 uh, U.S. military personnel in Guam, a critical U.S. air base, Anderson Air Force Base, the naval base Guam. But it seems to me, so it, it, it's not irrational for them to view this behavior as provocative. The second thing they want is an end to the Korean War. Uh, the Korean War is, is, is not, has never formally ended. There's, there's an armistice in place, and they want that to be ended. And it seems to me that both of those things can be and should be negotiated at the table. Now, we're further away from doing that, given Trump's rhetoric, but, you know, using going through the Chinese um, and saying, look, I mean, let's 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 broker you broker some kind of sitting down at the table and finding out what uh, what they want. One of the problems with this is, I think, in Tillerman's walking of this thing back, it's always been posed in terms of uh, of if North Korea halts its missile test. Mm-hmm. Then we Washington might be willing to open up talks with them, but that's but that puts a condition on that 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 uh, Pyongyang is never going to meet. That, that's that's just a... too conditional. It's too much of an ultimatum, and they're not going to do that. So if you remove that and said, let's get to the table and sit down and talk, tell us what you need, tell us what we we'll tell you what we need, and see if we can figure something out. Right, Peter. Yeah, let me expand just a a, a couple of points. Uh, Stephen brought up this idea of sort of a menu of options in foreign policy. And there's one that we haven't discussed, at least not in this conversation this morning, but one that the United States has used uh, vis-a-vis North Korea. And that, in fact, is incentives. 
if you go back to the uh, the Clinton administration, the, one of the first times that this was really sort of where the choice was between do we take a, a preemptive military response or do we do something else uh, to try to deal with North Korea's nuclear aspirations? Uh, in weighing those options, what the Clinton administration came up with was uh, an incentive package. Uh, and by some estimate, that that got the North Koreans to delay, uh, slow down their progress. Now it's, what, 2005 where they do their first successful test. Mm. So we, we buy about a decade of, of quiet. Well, and the Bush administration also undid that package, correct? They did. Uh, and, and the Congress never fully funded it. So there right. were all kinds of problems. But the bottom line was that incentive option should, uh, should be on the table, uh, as distasteful as it can be to offer rewards to what we consider to be bad actors. To come back to uh, the, the caller's question, Dave's question, he asked, you know, what does North Korea want? Uh, the reality is that what North Korea wants is to be essentially left alone. North Korea wants uh, the survival of the regime, the survival of the Kim family in power. Uh, North Korea has, has long argued that the primary threat to its existence is uh, an American invasion uh, with its South Korean proxies. And so when they detonated their first weapon in 2005, they announced the existence of their nuclear capability by announcing that they now possess the nuclear deterrent. So what they were saying was, don't mess with us. You know, it's not in North Korea's interests to initiate any kind of military exchange with the United States uh, or with South Korea, frankly. Um, It is in their interest to create the impression that they will respond to any military provocation with maximum firepower. And, and they have that capability conventionally, and they're developing that capability in a nuclear sense. We're going to take a quick break right here, but we want you to stay on the phones and talk to us about how you're feeling about the escalating tension between America and North Korea. We have a couple of experts here with us as well to answer any of your questions. John, David, Dennis, Tom, we'll get to all of you coming up right after the break. WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm here with Jake Neer. We're filling in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about the escalating tension between the United States and North Korea. How much should we make of the rhetoric that's being spouted between our leaders of both of our countries? And how much should we be preparing for potentially a military engagement or, you know, bombs being dropped? That's what's the most terrifying part about this discussion, the possibility of missiles being fired, intercontinental ballistics. Um, it, it's it's a serious conversation, but how serious is it? We're not sure. We want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number to call. Uh, I want to start this segment. We have a couple experts with us, uh, Peter Trumbor and also Stephen Manning. They're both experts on foreign relations, on international politics and poli-sci. So they're here to answer all of your questions. I know that Jake and I both have many. Let's mm-hmm. start this segment with John on the east side. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so four things come to mind when you start discussing this. A, uh, any discussion of the maturity of, of North Koreans' leader is just kind of at odds because uh, it would just be a debate who has more maturity, Trump or him. 
Right. The, the second thing is a lot more serious is that, you know, who 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 are we to say who has nuclear weapons? And and you know the fact that we uh, showed off our power back in the forties and killed a hundred or two hundred thousand people in an instant just to show our might. You know, this is a very dangerous uh, administration. Uh, but the, the fourth point is, I don't think any person, anybody's going to engage in nuclear warfare. I think that uh, our, our next warfare is going to be far more serious in, in uh, shutting down the, the, uh, the Internet and what have you. So that, that's that's what comes to mind. Well, me. John, thank you for your comment. It's part of what John is saying there, uh, Peter, is that no, we can't forget about the wars that we've had in the past that have been devastating and that maybe just the memory of what happened in World War II with the droppings of, of two bombs in Japan, um, that somehow that memory carries forward and we won't go forward with large bombs being dropped. But I just question, with so few people remaining who even fought in World War II at this point, as uh, as we have seen our veterans pass away, and more and more every day, uh, it, it's hard to imagine that our memory is that great. It just seems like a distant memory in many ways. There were some people who were young and, uh, and remember those bombs being dropped and the devastation, but I don't know that that institutional memory carries weight like maybe it did 40, 50 years ago. Sure, and I, but by the same token, I think we have to recognize that um, that you don't need a nuclear exchange for a new Korean War to be absolutely devastating in human yeah. terms. We're talking about the potential uh, in the event of an American preemptive strike, which I frankly think is more likely than a North Korean launch. Uh, an American preemptive strike cannot completely defang North Korea, not in conventional terms and not in nuclear terms. Uh, South Korea is so vulnerable to North Korean military response because of the proximity of its capital to the border. The uh, Seoul is only about 40 miles from the demilitarized zone. Uh, the North Korean military has uh, some 8,000 heavy artillery pieces on their side of the border. Uh, the population of the Seoul metro area is about 25 million. All of those folks are in the crosshairs of conventional high explosives in addition to the worst chemical weapons that, that human beings have ever devised. Uh, North Korea has an extensive arsenal. So the estimates are that uh, in the first 24 hours of a, of renewed fighting on the Korean Peninsula, you would see approximately 100,000 civilian casualties, fatalities alone. Hmm. And then over a period of days, we're talking potentially millions of casualties. Hmm. If this results in the collapse of the North Re Korean regime, which everyone expects would be the end result of a new war there, you're now talking about a massive humanitarian disaster on top of on top of the military, the, the war casualties. We're talking about millions of refugees flooding both north and south into China, south into South Korea. We're talking about the destruction of the South Korean economy. We are talking about the need to occupy and rebuild a country uh, the, uh, at, at a scale that the United States has not attempted since 1945. Well, in a region, not just a country. I mean, oh, I, indeed, I, yeah. right? You'd have to rebuild, frankly, the, the South Korea from Seoul North as well. So, yeah, we're talking about the, the end result of the worst-case scenario being pretty darn terrible. Right. And, and those estimates about the casualties, is, is that a conservative estimate, or how, how do, does one come to that estimate? Um, so most planners uh, 
well, I should say many planners tend to engage in what we often refer to as sort of worst-case scenario mm-hmm. planning. Uh, and frankly, uh, I think that that is the safer thing to do mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking about what are the implications of Just military action. Because be. let's be honest, if we think it would be clean, if we think it would be easy, then that takes away a disincentive to use that kind of, of approach. So when, when I talk about what these estimates look like, these are a, a consequence of, of, of years of wargaming, years of essentially planning out and, and simulating what this kind of conflict would look like. And so those are the, the estimates of the, the American military and intelligence community of what a renewed war would look like. Uh, Stephen, I want to ask you also the, what feels like a more trivial question, but it, it has large implications globally. What, are the, what is the discussion about the economic impact uh, mm-hmm. in Asia of, or worldwide of uh, a renewed war between the Koreas? Yeah, well, it was <laughs> to add add to the uh, add to the, the the bleak scenario that Peter just gave about uh, about uh, the economy and 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 human fatalities. Right. It would be it would be it, it would be disastrous. Quite frankly, it would be disastrous. I would add to the the the, the thing about the arms. The, the this has um, precipitated a uh, or, or at least talk of a new Asian arms race. There are forces both in Japan. And as you know, they 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 have a strictly defensive uh, uh, defensive military written into their constitution. There is talk in Japan about uh, attaining preemptive military uh, military weaponry. There's also in um, in South Korea a similar a similar thing going on. There's the a conservative opposition party, the Liberty Korean Party, that is calling for the reintroduction of. Uh, 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 to establish a balance of terror with North Korea, the reintroduction of uh, tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea. These were the U.S. had these in in South Korea, um, and we withdrew them in the early 1990s. There's talk that they that those those kinds of weapons be be reintroduced into South Korea. So there's kind of an Asian arms race going on as well. Fortunately, uh, the new uh, South Korean president, uh, President Moon Jae-in, has rejected those and is calling for one of the strongest voices calling for diplomacy. But back to your question, I think that the uh, the economic consequences would be would be very very severe, detrimental to the United States, to China, to the whole. Asian scenario, and, to the, and since the global economy is so interdependent uh, these days, uh, to, to the whole global economy. Yeah, you're listening to one uh, You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer here with Laura Weber Davis, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. We're talking about the situation with North Korea. We're joined by experts uh, Peter Trombor, associate professor of political science and the coordinator of the, the international relations program at Oakland University, and on the phone Stephen Manning, he teaches comparative and international politics and political theory at U of D Mercy. Uh, please give us a call. Tell us what you're thinking here. The best number to call is uh, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also drop us a comment on our Facebook page or hashtag Detroit Today. Oren on Facebook says, it pre- it seems pretty juvenile for the president to speak in such a way, but also he was to let North Korea understand, he has to let North Korea understand, I believe he's saying, that you cannot threaten the United States. I hope there is no war, but it seems that's going to happen. Uh, Stephen and Peter, uh, we, we can get to uh, the idea of, of where this is headed in a bit, but I, getting to especially your point, Peter, earlier, 
There was a really interesting piece in Brookings yesterday about what the real threat is here if it's not going in that direction if it's if it's not necessarily a all-out nuclear war between mm-hmm. the United States and North Korea uh, in the Brookings piece it says as North Korea's quest is getting closer to success skepticism in Seoul and Tokyo about credibility of the American commitment is increasing Reasonably, the skeptics ask, if North Korea attacked them, would Washington be willing to retaliate with nuclear weapons when North Korea would be able and probably willing to counter-retaliate by hitting America? Would Washington be willing to risk San Francisco in order to save Seoul or Tokyo? I thought that was a really interesting kind of conundrum in this entire situation. Uh, Peter, I'll start with you. What is your reaction to that? Um, it's a fair question, I suppose. I mean, you have to remember back even in the presidential campaign, um, Donald Trump, because of his rhetoric, had raised the simple question of whether or not the United States would stand with its allies, whether it's South Korea or Japan in the event of, of conflict. So look, that's a fair question to ask, right? Would the United States risk that? Uh, that assumes a couple of things. That assumes that North Korea has, in fact, solved the puzzle of not just how to shrink down a nuclear weapon to fit inside a missile, which is the the Defense Intelligence Agency's estimate that has led to all of this uh, fuss over that they they have have done so, right? Mm -hmm. But we we aren't certain of that. We also don't know if they have managed to uh, perfect the technology that would make that warhead survive reentry. Now, the test they did back in July, uh, Japanese TV caught footage of that uh, device breaking up on reentry, right? This and is for long-range missiles. Correct, yeah. right? And so if, if your warhead burns up in the atmosphere, obviously it's not targeting San Francisco or Chicago right. or Washington, D.C. or any of the American cities that uh, are uh, purported to be within the range of this new generation of North Korean weapons. So there's a lot of variables here that, that are still in play. But it's a fair question, right? Would the United States risk one of its own cities to stand with... Uh, to stand with an ally. And the danger is, is that even if we were to say categorically today, if the Trump administration was to come out and the president was going to come out and say categorically that, yes, we would, given the lack of credibility that his statements hold, who would take that seriously? So if you are the South Koreans, if you are the Japanese, I think think Stephen's absolutely right. There are pressures in both of those countries to develop their own independent deterrent. for North Korea, because they can't be certain that the United States will, in fact, stand, stand by its commitments. I want to go back to the phones here. Uh, first, let's start with Dennis in Southfield. Dennis, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining the program. What's your comment today? Well, uh, as a student of history, um, I would like to say what Trump said, the gist of it was right. It's just the way he said it was totally inflammatory and unbelievable. Uh, Hitler got as far as he did because the West backed down and backed down and backed down again until the very last second. Um, what Trump, I, I appreciate what he said, but it was totally inflammatory and unbelievable. Uh, what Mattis said, I think it was Mattis, his response was much more uh, believable and presidential. Hmm. Um, Kim Jong-un, is that his name? Yes. Um, he's crazy, but he's not stupid. At least I don't think he's stupid. For him to launch an attack, I mean, the natural response would be obliteration. Uh, I like what one of the, the, the gentlemen this morning said, was that uh, that 
they just want to be left alone. And I guess they're positioning themselves where, uh, um, you know, maybe that's that's what they want. But to to launch missiles at Guam for no to just unilaterally launch an attack. And even if it and even if it is successful, I don't think it would be. But even if it was successful, I mean, the natural response would be to to end the regime and to literally destroy the country. So I think he's crazy like a fox. But I don't think he's stupid. Uh, Peter, thank uh, yeah. you, Dennis. Peter? Right, so this is, that last comment I think is probably the best one, right? And, crazy and, like and, a fox? And, and I would never use the word crazy, right? You know, the, the North Korean regime is eminently rational in that they seek above all else survival. Survival especially of the Kim family and its hold on power. You know, the North Korean uh, style of diplomacy essentially has been to walk up right to the edge of disaster, lean way over, and yet not topple across. <laughs> and that's what they do. This is like the ultimate in brinksmanship. That's how they play the game. I think that's what they're doing now. Thank you. Uh, Angelo, you get the last comment. We have about 30 seconds left. So what do you have to say? Angela in Detroit. Angela? Angela in Detroit. Okay, Angela, uh, sorry, call back another time, I suppose. Uh, I guess now we have to wrap up the segment. Uh, I have a lot, uh, many more questions, and I'll yes. probably speak with you after the segment's over, Peter. <laughs> Stephen Manning, thank you so much for joining us on the phone as well. You're Peter, welcome. My pleasure. Peter Trumbord, thank you for joining us in the studio. Thanks a lot for having me. You're listening to Detroit Today. We'll be right back and talk about being Muslim in America and podcasting that experience. That's next. Thank you.